Octavio Antonio Fernandez Castro began his life in San Pedro de Macorís, a cloistered municipality nestled along the southern shores of the Dominican Republic, founded in the 19th century by Cuban exiles and transformed into a bustling city. It became renowned for pioneering massive social and industrial changes across the country, and in particular, the sport of baseball. It was also home to their first ever national baseball championship and gave birth to a glorious generation of supremely skilled athletes. Robinson Cano, Pedro Guerrero, Juan Samuel, to name but a few. This was also the city which literally gifted the Toronto Blue Jays franchise with a superlative cadre of players that would define the team's future and legitimize them as bona fide contenders. Familiar names such as George Bell, Damaso Garcia, and Alfredo Griffin are forever etched in the memories of baby boomers and their progeny, remaining an intractable part of the legacy secured by Uber scout and talent evaluator Epi Guerrero the man responsible for signing over 50 of the most highly coveted Dominican players to MLB teams and single-handedly stocking their roster cupboards full of grandeur for decades to come. His greatest revelation, though, was likely to be the discovery of an acne-riddled, gangly teenager whose infield pirouettes and unearthly throws to first base were the stuff of diamond lore. The kind of feats which absolutely needed to be seen in order to grasp the sheer wonderment of a player and his craft. We remember a figure ranging to his right while on the run, leaping high into the crisp midsummer's air, lunging for a screaming liner that's not only snagged and corralled, but then thrown underhandedly across the body and delivered in the most timely and efficient manner possible. Oh, how many hours spent perfecting the mimicry which childhood friends on the sandlots across Toronto, the vaunted and superhuman Fernandez Toss. After his promotion of the show in 1983, splitting time at shortstop with his fellow countryman Alfredo Griffin, Tony was inevitably named a starter in 1985 and never looked back. It was abundantly obvious to fans during this era that Tony Fernandez was truly exceptional. His 992 fielding percentage during this time was a record for shortstops, and while Ozzie Smith was staking his claim as the greatest defensive talent in the senior circuit, Tony quietly cemented his reign as the best all-around counterpart in the American League, magnificently highlighted by his four gold gloves, his prowess as a consummate leadoff hitter, don't forget he had 213 hits in 1986, and his deceptive speed like in 1987 when he would steal 32 bags. History, of course, is not without a sense of humor, and some would argue that the period between 1985 and 1991 was full of so many tantalizingly brutal moments and subsequent failures that something almost cataclysmic needed to happen for fans of the team to salvage what remained of their diminishing sanity. A bevy of failed playoff runs against Kansas City, Oakland, and Minnesota and disappointing regular seasons in 1986, 1987, 1988, and 1990 resulted in crushingly high expectations which needed to be satiated, especially in lieu of a taxpayer-funded brand-new stadium forcing the hand of general manager Pat Gillick to unveil his ultimate gambit. And so, on a cloudy December morning during the 1991 winter meetings, in a move that stunned both cities and their respected fan bases, the Toronto Blue Jays dealt away their homegrown shortstop prodigy in what was called a chemistry-altering transaction with the San Diego Padres. 
now best remembered as one of the biggest blockbuster trades in the modern era of baseball history. Gone were the cruel and melancholy memories of an unassailable George Brett and absolutely unstoppable Alan Trammell, a viciously unrepentant Bill Madlock, a mercurial Jose Canseco, and the demigod himself, Kirby Pocket, all valiantly preventing the ascension of Blue Jays' hopes and dreams. Excised and exercised almost overnight, while taking with them the crown jewel of an infielder in his prime and the owner of four straight gold gloves between 1986 and 1989, who had set the record for hits by shortstop a mere half-decade earlier. His departure was the hardest decision Pat Gillick had to make in likely his entire baseball career, and in some ways, perhaps the most necessary. There were rumors that his own wife lamented the move, no doubt scolding her husband for including the promising young slugger Fred McGriff as part of the package. And for a short time during the winter of that year, many fans found it difficult to fathom the loss of their coveted shortstop in exchange for an unproven second baseman named Roberto Alomar and a, quote, wrong side of 30, end quote, left fielder, Joe Carter. Knowing that the glory days of World Series success erased much of the angst and bitterness isn't the real solace at hand. For surely it was the return of Fernandez in June of 1993 from the New York Mets and watching him drive in nine runs during the finals that made me smile broadly then as it does today. Management's decision to bring him back to enjoy the fruits of years unfulfilled by never getting over the hump was a tribute to the player and truly a love letter to the fans. Tony would leave the Blue Jays after his World Series experience and spend a number of years with other teams exporting his field artistry and veteran leadership as only a mature championship-caliber stalwart possibly could. And although his travails with the Cleveland Indians were well-documented and resulted in irrefutable highs and incredulous lows, there can be no doubting that Tony was leaving his imprint on this game for posterity. Returning for his third tour of duty in 1988 with the Blue Jays on the wings of a relatively frugal two-year $4.5 million contract, Fernandez inexplicably discovered the fountain of youth, producing two of his best offensive seasons ever at the supposedly declining age of 36. Perspective is everything in the game of baseball, and so it shouldn't come as a surprise that I couldn't possibly find enough hyperbole to acknowledge his outrageously impressive 427 on-base percentage in 1999, especially considering that he was invited to the Midsummer Classic that year, defiantly showing legions of Toronto fans why he was still the man, bad knees and all. Perhaps it was the fact that he had inadvertently stumbled into middle age when we weren't looking but suddenly, the baby-faced teenager who had stolen our hearts was now perceived as a mature and diminishing asset. And rather than submit to the humiliation of paltry Major League Baseball offers with strict conditions on playing time, Tony Fernandez did what a dignified, self-respecting player of his era does. He signed with the Sai Blue Lions of the Nippon Japanese League and continued playing his beloved brand of baseball getting paid handsomely while performing to the delights of Yamato, Ainu, and Ryukyun spectators. But the allure of the big leagues remained, and after signing with the Milwaukee Brewers in February of 2001, Fernandez found himself unceremoniously released after the first month of the new season while hitting 281 with a 352 on on-base percentage, numbers that would surely be valued in today's game. He seemed destined to suffer the ignominious fate of many aging and grizzled veterans well before him, that's when fate stepped in and dealt him a final curtain call. The Blue Jays picked him up as a free agent 
and reacquired their prodigal son for one last tour of duty. He knew his time in the game was nearing an end, and that this last hurrah represented the closure he'd always desired and genuinely deserved. Poetically, he would finish his career as he began it. When the franchise honored him in September of the same year with a revered spot on the Blue Jays' level of excellence, the Jays wasted little time in embracing their most heralded player, knowing they couldn't possibly express their gratitude enough to address such monumental achievements. Such was the genuine respect afforded to Fernandez. Tony finished his career as the franchise leader in games, 1,450 played, hits with 1,583, and triples with 72, ranking in the top five with doubles, average, runs, total bases, walks, and stolen bases. That his name isn't mentioned more often in the media and with the team's promotional campaigns doesn't surprise me. His legacy is as reserved as he was in person. This was a humble player who wore humility on his sleeve and distinguished himself with boundless professionalism, bereft of fancy handshakes and surly interviews or posturing on-field displays. I still remember that crafty batting stance, that indomitable infield posture, and that fearless warrior who was the veritable embodiment of all the things an athlete should and could be. A part of me wonders if the faithful in Toronto, New York, Cleveland, and Milwaukee really understood the influence of Fernandez and what he meant to this game, just how brilliant he was, and why many who watched him play felt like they were witnessing baseball royalty on display. For this prince of San Pedro de Macorís found a way to leave an indelible mark in the most unlikely of northern fantasies, a place where a young boy armed with only a baseball glove and the spirit of a white-winged warbler, their native bird, rose high above himself and took his rightful place amongst the titans of his childhood sport, becoming what this writer and podcaster has always known to be the greatest player to ever wear a Blue Jays uniform. I give you now my exclusive one-on-one -on -one interview with the legendary Tony Fernandez, here on the Jays Journal Podcast. Let's start right from the beginning. Um, All right. Because you, because you really do have a fascinating story. I, I'm surprised that it hasn't been made into a movie yet, because I think it would be one heck of a baseball story. You know, a young boy in San Pedro de Macorís, an extraordinarily cultural, distant place that few people had ever heard about before 1980s baseball, and young... Tony Fernandez is playing with his friends and learning the game of baseball. How old were you, Tony, when it dawned on you that this was going to be your sport? I would say about uh, 13 or 14. You know, I heard a lot of people always talking about the, the talent that I had. and I didn't pay too much attention to that until uh, Epi Guerrero you know, came to see me one day. I think I was younger than that. I was younger than that. Probably 12 when he saw me and uh, he was in awe. I mean, he, he started uh, making some great comments and uh, he, he, he even attempted to bring me to his house. I mean, he wanted me, he wanted me to move with him as a family, so I live with him as a family. But I said, no, I'm not, I don't want to leave my family. I, I don't want to leave my parents. I was very close to my parents. And... Uh, but then, then as I got older, you know, as I, as I read the, the teen years, I realized <laughs> that uh, uh, this was something serious and uh, that I had a very good chance of becoming a professional baseball player. So I did, I did took advantage of it. And uh, 
growing up around those, those uh, ball players and uh, uh, people that are new baseball, like Epic Guerrero and so forth, uh, I think it was a great, great way to expose my talent and, and so forth. But I, I think the, the main thing for me at that age was the, uh, the way that I, that I enjoyed the game. My friends always told me that, that I enjoyed the game and I have fun playing, playing baseball. I, I, I never, I never thought about baseball as as a way of, of making, you know, making money or or anything else. I just want to be, I just want to be like those players that I grew up watching in my hometown, San Pedro de Macorís. Which player that you enjoyed watching was the inspiration for you focusing on being a shortstop? You know, they, 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 he was basically the father of the older the shortstops in Dominican Republic. Uh, Pepe Frias, Jesus Pepe Frias, they call him. Mm-hmm. And uh, his name was Jesus Frias, Pepe Frias with the Montreal Expo. Then I think he played with the Atlanta Braves and the Texas Rangers. But uh, mainly he was a backup shortstop uh, in Montreal. He would come on later on in the game for the, for defensive purpose. But in, in Dominican Republic, he was the everyday shortstop for our home team, Estrellas Orientales. Uh, and uh, Pepe, you know, basically was like I said, was was the master of making making plays, you know, on the whole running towards to, to the second and throwing the ball running. I mean, we all learned uh, from him, like Alfred Griffin, uh, Nelson Norman, uh, uh, Rafael Ramirez, just to mention a few, uh, learned from him. And uh, <laughs> uh, Rico Cady was another player that we admired so much. Uh, Cesar Cedeno, uh also those two players from an offensive standpoint were the players that we admire the most in our hometown but again every young player that I knew every every teenager uh, really wanted to be uh, like Pepe Frias uh, uh, or one of the other two players that I just mentioned the super radio was Cesar Zidane, you know, when he came up, he was only 19 with the uh, Houston Astros. And, uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, mm. I'm telling you, everyone wanted to play baseball like that. And uh, <laughs> Actually, when I saw Sammy Sosa, I remember the first time I play, when I saw him playing, he reminded me in the way that Cesar Zidane played. Uh, then uh, he became an offensive ball player. But... Uh, with, with, uh, with Rico Gatti, it was different. Rico was just a hit. He could hit. Man, my goodness, he was a good hitter. Uh, one of the best pure hitters that has ever come out of the Dominican Republic. Uh, he has ever played the game uh, at the Major League level. It was, for me, it was a tremendous experience I mean, to be able to uh, uh, to grow up around those people. You know, I, was, I used to live right behind the ballpark in San Pedro de Macorís. So I would go to, to school and come and come up from school and then just drop my, my books on the table. Maybe grab a bite to eat when I had time and then, and then just jump off the plane. Mm. Uh, right to your center, right center of your wall. I would jump off and then uh, just go and shot, you know. Because those players back then, uh, they used to come and hit uh, around noon. And that's when I came out of school. And uh, so I came off school. So I uh, I took advantage to to, uh, to learn how to play the game uh, even more. And that was an advantage for me to be able 
to watch them hit and to, to throw a ball in practice for BP to them and uh, and then hear them talk baseball, watch them on the field and just let them hit and I will feel the ball. I will, I will shake as much as I could. And, uh, all those things and you know uh, end up help, helping me a lot in my career because I, I, I as an early age it looked it looked like I was older in the way that I play although I was 14 uh, I look it looks like I was 18 already and that, that really that really uh, worked great for me it's interesting because to anyone watching you from afar even at that young age by all accounts, they could tell there was something very distinctive about the way you played the position, the way you were playing baseball. When when did you realize or how did you develop that what is now classic Fernandez sidearm toss that you became synonymous with? Was that something you were taught or was that something that one day you started to do and realized it works for me and boy, I do it better than all the other kids? I, I really believe that uh, I worked on it earlier in my career before I become a professional. I used to go to the ballpark and uh, I had a friend by the name of, uh, or I have a friend by the name of Domingo Connell, which also played baseball with the Toronto Blue Jays in the minor league organization. And Connell, he used to uh, hit me ground balls. I would tell him, hit, hit me the ball in the hall as much as you can. Uh, repetition, repetition. I want to I wanna learn. Uh, to get rid of the ball, like Pepe Frias does, uh, in the run, I just hit it, and I would go take it over, take it, just catch a, catch a ball and throw it, catch a ball and throw it. Ironically, I've, uh, you know, I had a strong arm, contrary to what people believe. My arm was strong, mm-hmm. but I couldn't hit the target as often as I wanted to. And uh, then I got hurt. Excuse me. I hurt my 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 arm a little bit. And uh, I was already a professional ball player, you know, and uh, uh, then I dropped a little bit more on the side, and uh, it became much easier for me to hit the target. Uh, I was playing halfway through. I was like in 1981. I remember mm-hmm. I was playing triple when I got hurt in the, uh, the shoulder. Lane Bucket, I remember the guy was running from first to second, breaking up a double play against the Minnesota Twins at Syracuse, New York. And... Uh, <coughs> My shoulder, actually, I was the one running. He was a short. And when he was trying to turn, I left my arms too high. And he hit me right, right by the shoulder area, below, below, by the bicep, in the bicep area. And uh, I believe that I hurt the bicep tendon, and that forced me to drop a little bit. But I got healed. I went back to Dominican, and, you know, I took ter- therapy, and... Uh, but within a year, I think my arm was healed already. But I, I, I got so used to and became so comfortable that I, I said, why, why change? I mean, unless I have to go a little bit over the top, I don't need to. I mean, I hit the target much easier. I was quicker. That way, I always get the guys at one step, a step and a half. I mean, even if it's half a step, uh, it's a, but I always get them. Uh, so I said, this, this works perfectly. This works perfectly. I don't need to, to throw that hard. I just need to get rid of the ball as quick as I can. So footwork for me uh, was the key. The, uh, uh, I learned that, uh, that you do, fear thing is done with the legs. You catch with the hands, but fear thing is done with the legs. 
and uh, yeah. the, the rest the rest is history. <laughs> it, it truly is, as is that realization that because at a young age you were already so focused on fundamentals, you were noticed by what many here in Toronto like to call the Uber Scout, uh, Epi Guerrero. And the thing about Epi Guerrero, which somebody my age will appreciate, is that he truly was the vanguard of the Dominican Republic being put on the map in baseball and part of a great wave of 1980s Dominican players. What were your experiences with Epi knowing that he was essentially the key towards building your professional career in North America? Oh, the, uh, I agree with you. Uh, Epi, Epi was more like a father mentor to me. Uh, unfortunately, that relationship has been lost. Because today, you don't see that relationship between players, scouts, and, and, and the players that are signed in the Dominican Republic or Latin America. Uh, but Epi and I had a very close relationship. You know, like I said, father father son relationship, and uh, he was always mentoring me, even when I was in the big league. Uh, he was always mentoring me and so forth. And, and, and he would, as, as you mentioned, he was well respected uh, all around baseball. So to me, that was that was that was a big plus to have this man uh, that's so knowledgeable of the game, wanted to, to to help me. He was always trying to to add to my game and, 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 and teaching me how to behave, how to do certain things. He 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 believed. I mean, he out, uh, outright believed uh, in my uh, in my ability to play the game, and uh, he uh, he basically got me to another level uh, because he was always, you know, just uh, giving me more of encouragement to 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 go forward mm-hmm. and, and, and and the accolades. I mean, he he he. I don't know how how else to put it, but uh, the fact that I that like that game that he was known so well around baseball. Uh, the baseball world, uh, uh, nationally and international, play a big key in my part. But uh, the most important thing for me with Epi is the way that he treated me. I mean, uh, he uh, he uh, he believed in me. He helped me to develop my character uh, as a person, as a player. The uh, so so much that uh, I, I I really believe that I needed him to be close uh, to me in order for me to excel. Like I, uh, when I finished my season in, in the in the state and Canada, I always go back to the farm system in Dominican, I mean, to his place to work out because I knew if I have a problem, he would correct right away. And, and, and that relationship grew stronger and stronger and stronger and uh, uh, the, to be honest, the uh, I was very fortunate in my career to have a person like him next to me uh, as, as a mentor. And I, and I know that I have many good mentors. I was very, 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 I was blessed, very, very fortunate to have mentors uh, in the area of healing, in the area of fielding. Uh, but most, impo- most importantly, my mentor game, the mental aspect of the game was developed at another level because this man was next to me. I mean, uh, see, I lost my father at, at an early age. I was 20 when my father passed away. And it seems like the, 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 the good Lord said, Tony's going to need a mentor. 
father liked Tiki, and uh, he brought it. He brought everything next to me, and uh, uh, he was he was like my godfather. <laughs> no, and he was the godfather to many people in in in, 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 in baseball. But uh, for for me, especially, even even our relationship grew so so close that uh, he was the godfather of our of our wedding. Unbelievable! So inspirational. And quite frankly, Tony, we could say he was the godfather of the Toronto Blue Jays, especially in the 1980s. Uh, by all accounts, Epi was responsible for bringing 50 of the best Dominican Republic players that one would ever find across Major League Baseball franchises. I think of names that I grew up with, you know, the inspirational ones, aside from yourself, like uh, Pedro Guerrero and, and Juan Samuel. And then the next decade over, we had, you know, Robinson Cano and... Uh, Alfonso Soriano, but on the Blue Jays front, how much did it mean to you to see that Epi had facilitated an opportunity where you could grow up with other fellow countrymen like George Bell, like Alfredo Griffin, like Damaso Garcia? What did that mean to you, knowing that even though you'd lost your dad, you were, you had found a new family? Uh, uh, it meant a lot, you know. It meant a lot because. Uh, it was they were like siblings, like brothers to me. Uh, to be honest, I was the youngest of the group, and uh, then then I became uh, mentor to some of the other guys coming up, some of the other younger players. But uh, the fact that I the Epi was there for us, uh, we knew that we had his backing, and, and we we behave like we belong. I mean, we were not just there uh, filling in. No, we belong there. <laughs> We were we were the, we were the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, we knew that we were a big part of the Toronto Blue Jays, and, and the Latin players that were always has been always a great part of the Toronto Blue Jays. And uh, Epi make make sure that we felt that way and that we played that way. We were very important, an important piece of the puzzle. And uh, when you when you think that way, your confidence level automatically goes up, goes go to another mm-hmm. go to another level. Uh, I'm sorry to be redundant, but uh, the uh, I don't have another way to put it. It's just no, like a, no, you, you are not you are you are you are not timid, you know. You, you you might look shy, but you are not. You know, you play with the confidence of any of any ball player, and uh, I think the other the other players around us knew that we felt very comfortable uh, within the organization because of uh, the presence of Epi Guerrero around us. That's an extraordinary legacy. One, quite frankly, Tony, I think doesn't get talked about enough because those 1980s teams were transformative. And clearly the Latin contingent in particular had such an extraordinary influence. You arrived on the scene to what was essentially an expansion team that was getting tired of losing. And it's no surprise that upon Tony Fernandez arriving and joining George Bell and, and joining Alfredo Griffin and Damaso Garcia, suddenly things are starting to happen. At what point after you became a regular, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was around 1983, at what point did you look at this new team and new surroundings and maybe start saying to yourself, I think we could win championships here in Toronto? I, I would say that around the, uh, the 1984 season, because uh, I, I remember it, my first full season was in 1985, but I came up in September for a, you know, as a September call up for about a month, and then I came on March, uh, March 21st. I came back up for good, and uh, 
you know, I have my uh, my share of, of, uh, of games. You know, I had like 250 at bat. And uh, yeah, I learned a lot with, uh, with Alfredo uh, being there, the Damas Garcia. Uh, uh, when I, I watch it, when I watch those guys play, I mean, uh, it's, it's especially against the Detroit Tigers, uh, that was that was a rivalry that I enjoyed so much. And uh, yeah, uh, I believe, really believe that that was the year that uh, all of the Blue Jays players began to have confidence. They they, they began to put along along with me and, and the rest. I mean, uh, we belong, we began to have confidence, but I I, I would say they because they play more games than what I did. But uh, by by 1985, we knew we were, we were a serious uh, team to contend with. Uh, you ha- they have to contend with us because we we were we were there for good. I mean, we were not we were not just, we were not a mistake. There was no coincidence uh, in, in in our path, and that the, the, we were there because of uh, in a bush in, in, uh, in or. Uh, uh, a freaking, the freaking nature, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were, we were forced to 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 contend with, and 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 I think the the rest of the team in the in the American League East knew that from now on the Jays had to be taken seriously. Uh, we were going to be a, a thorn in the flesh for the other teams, and uh, especially you know the Yankees and both the Red Sox and so forth. The uh, uh, you, you you can smell it in the clubhouse. You can you can by the way they they they, they talk, by the way they behave. Uh, uh, as they oh we know we know we got it. They don't want to face us. Uh, so by by 1985, I think uh, we we became uh, one of the teams to beat in the American League. All the teams to be to be honest, uh, we should have we should have won. We should have won everything in 1985. But remember that that was the year that they changed uh, the playoffs. They went from yeah. the, the playoffs uh, format. They went from uh, the playoff format was changed from uh, best out of five to best out of seven. Best, uh, best out of seven. That's right. And uh, that that hurt us. But uh, well, that's baseball. But I still believe we were the best team that year in the American League East. No, not the American League East. I believe that we were the best team. In, in, in the American League, and, and, and I can't say right now <laughs> the National League because we were not able to to go forward. But uh, sometimes the best team not always win. You know, sometimes you have the, 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 the team that has the best players uh, uh, on the field. Unfortunately, doesn't translate into a win, a winning season or a championship. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, you know, you know, you've been following baseball. You understand exactly what I'm trying to say. Sure. Uh, but but uh, the, uh, if you compare the 1985 team, uh, like they said with the 1992, 93, they they like to compare the 1993 or 92 team with the 85. Uh, I say they were very close. The, the fact that we were all almost. All the all homegrown players, you know, were developed uh, within the organization. Uh, it has a little bit more meaning to me. The '85 team is was my team for me. That's that's the team that I remember, team that I remember the most because that's really when we became we became, uh, like I said, a force to be to be reckoned with. There's no question in my mind. Looking back, when I get asked that question of which was the greatest Blue Jays team 
perhaps of all time. I do look to that 1985 team for so many reasons, as you just described. It was a brotherhood. There was a tremendous amount of depth and, and resources available to the club. It was never about one person. I remember statistically that's what really set aside the 87 team. You know, both teams were powerful teams, 99 and 96 wins respectively. But the 87 team exposed what happened when you lose players to injuries. And it is enormously sad for me to have to recollect the infamous, uh, you talked about it earlier about how at second base you have to keep your head up uh, whenever you're making a play. And of course, Bill Madlock probably should have been banned from baseball when he went out of his way and took you out of what was uh, an important stretch of uh, time in the season. When you look back at those teams, 85, not being able to get to the World Series, and 87, going through the last seven days of the season and how excruciating it must have been, um, do you still have regret looking back, thinking that those teams could have won the World Series? Of course I do. Uh, of course. Both teams, like you said, uh, 87 was devastating for me. Uh, 87, I don't talk much about 87 because, like, like you just mentioned, you know, uh, my goodness, we had like a six or seven game lead uh, on the Tigers, and then we lost that lead uh, because mm-hmm. of injuries, basically. Uh, to, to, to keep players like Aaron Nguyen and myself, uh, we, we, we have a very, very strong team, good offense. Offensively, we were one of the best team as well in 1980. Oh, yeah. uh, and the, the, uh, that was George Bell's year. I mean, that George single-handedly basically carried the, a ball club. Uh, you know, 47 homers. Back then, it was wow. 47 homers. Uh, the uh, uh, we 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 were we had so we were a threat yeah, all the way from, from from the first batter to the ninth hitter from a ninth hitter. But uh, knowing that, that George was 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 hitting the ball so so well, he was in the zone. I mean, and, 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 and Jesse wasn't too bad too bad of this. I mean, that they he they, they those those guys were hitting. Uh, but George, my goodness, like I say. He was just yes, Mr. Baseball for us. He was carrying the ball club, and uh, we thought for sure, well, we didn't, if we didn't do it in, in 1985, this is the year. 1987 mm-hmm. is the year. And now we have pitching. You know, we have a, we have a closer. We have a, 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 everything. Overall, we were better prepared than than, than in '85. So we we, we thought for sure. Uh, we want to go for, forward, you know, and, and, and conquer the American League, American League East, and, and, and so forth. Uh, but uh, at the same token, you know, like I said, with all those injuries, I think we begin uh, to lose a little bit of confidence. And uh, when we came back the following year, I don't think we were the same team. Yeah. No. We, we just were not the same. And, and, of course, leadership changed. Bobby Cox moved on. Jimmy Williams was now the manager. The chemistry not doesn't just apply between players, right? It's also your leader and, and the way that you're being rallied on the field. I think you'll agree it was an extraordinary conflux of players all maturing and evolving at the same time. Because while you were busy now going to the All-Star game, uh, winning gold gloves, setting offensive records, you had players like George Bell evolving uh, people forget he was extremely quick on the base paths early in his career. So you had George Bell evolving 30-30 threat. You have Jesse Barfield with his arm and his bat hitting 40 home runs. You have Jimmy Key 
in my opinion, becoming one of the best left-handers, uh, better, I thought, than Roger Clemens in 87 and probably should have won the Cy Young Award. Um, it, it is extraordinary to think that there's a limited time to capture that, isn't it? Because a lot of things have to coalesce in baseball in order for a team to be effective and get that little sprinkling of good luck, too. Did you feel, perhaps by 88, 88 and 89, that perhaps that was already starting to wear thin? I, I believe so. I believe that the team's chemistry was, was about to be lost. Uh, for some reason, we lost leadership. Uh, you said it right. The, uh, that was that was the key for us. Uh, we were so much talent, and I think I think the the organization began to to understand. Uh, they understood that we needed a change uh, because uh, we didn't know how to win. Like I talked to some of the uh, one of the senior advisors uh, in the Texas Rangers organization, and I want to join them. Uh, he used to be uh, with us as well, and uh, he told me we just didn't know how to win. We need, we need, it, we need, it, we need someone to teach us how to win, and so that's when the the the, the, the organization began to make those changes, and uh, again I, I believe the chemistry came back when those new players were were brought were brought back uh, into Toronto, but as you said, it right, chemistry is the main thing, and that that there's little things, many many little things that have to go right for the for the organization or for the team to win. Uh, it, it takes more than just hitting and hitting a home run or pitching a good game. Uh, you, you, you have to get 25 guys to play, or, or nine guys to play as 25 uh, guys on the field. And, uh, if you take nine out and bring new, uh, nine new ones, you have to believe that they were going to play as a one team. And, and, and everybody has to be comfortable for the role they have been assigned to. And uh, uh, I don't know. I just, I guess, I just believe that I, I felt like by, by the end of 1989, all that was gone. I mean, uh, we mm-hmm. were frustrated, to be honest, more than anything else. So I, I'm glad when the changes were made, and uh, I'm even happier that I was able to come back and and, and, to, and, and, and be part of the uh, the winning team in 1993. But I, I'm. I'm just, I felt sorry for those guys that were able that you know, to yeah. win. Uh, yeah, because they, they deserve it, you know, to, to be honest. They deserve it. They, they were the heart uh, and soul of the Toronto Blue Jays. Hmm. You know, guy, guy like guy like, 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 like Jesse Barker and Lloyd Mosby and, and George Bell, uh, they, they deserve it to win. My goodness. Garth Orch, Wentz Bonnet, they deserve it. Absolutely. Really Absolutely. Yeah, Ernie, yes. And, and Buck, if not just for that one play where he broke his leg but still completed the out, I mean, we have to give credit where credit was due even in the micro examples, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, must, that, that must go down. Maybe that went down as one of the greatest plays ever in baseball. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, I remember. I was there. <laughs> I, I still can't believe that uh, he was able to make it, that play, you know, tag that guy out and then get <laughs> uh, no without moving. Uh, no that, that should be turned into a movie. Well, and there are a lot of things about the 80s, you and I could probably agree, that should be turned into a movie. Because 89 and 91 were what by today's standards fans would consider to be a successful year. But you and I both know that after all the tumultuousness of the 1988 season, uh, 
A man arrived who was already there, who really changed the fortunes of this franchise and one that I feel deserves a statue in front of the Rogers Center. Tell me your perspective of Cito Gaston and what he meant to this club in guiding them to the promised land, as they say. You know, I, I believe that, uh, the, yeah, you're right. Cito was a Moses of the, mm-hmm. of the Toronto Blue Jays. I, I believe that uh, uh, Mr. Gaston doesn't get enough recognition for what he has accomplished. Uh, uh, winning those two World Series, not only those two World Series, Cito became the 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 the, 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 the missing puzzle of the organization. He became the leader of our ball club. You know, we we respect Cito. We respected him uh, more. I, I would say as much as, as any manager that we ever had. Uh, or, you know, like Bobby was respected. Bobby Cox was was the most respected manager, I think, uh, in the organization. Uh, until then, the, uh, but uh, if you if you think about the Tony Russo, Joe Torre, you, you have to play Cito Gasol in that category. As far as Absolutely, they, mm-hmm. they, 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 they were getting from the players. The uh, Cito was a type of manager uh, or the type of person that would just let you play the game. You know, and then you know, go ahead and then I'm going to back you up. I'm going to back you up. But you have to do your best. Just do your best on the field, and I got you back. Mm-hmm. And that was very comforting to us. I mean, uh, the uh, it was it was just a pleasure to play with a man like him. You know, you always, always wanted to give more than hundred percent. As professional, you have your ethic. I mean, uh, you want to give hundred percent. But that hundred one percent, that extra one percent, sometimes is what makes it different. Winning or losing, you know, taking the team to the next level, and Ciro had that capacity to get that extra one percent from his players, uh, and I can't say that about about all the managers. Too many, too many, too many other managers. Uh, he he broke the mold, and in some respects, when you do that, and time passes, it's important for us to remember why we had a standard of excellence in the first place in the city, and and Ciro Gaston, what he was able to do. Uh, as the hitting coach of an expansion team that once upon a time was losing triple digits of games and and then finding a way to restore their their credibility so that fans could look at the franchise and say this was a world-class place to play baseball. Uh, How did you feel with the arrival of the what is now regarded as a bit of a retro barn but what were your thoughts when the Sky Dome opened and you were able to see that Toronto was now trying to compete on the same level with every other major American baseball city? Well, we knew that. We knew that we were we were for real. We had a ballpark. I said, well, now we have a, ball, a baseball ballpark. And people will, will, will love to come here and play baseball. Because before... Uh, Believe me, no one wanted to come to come to Toronto because of the, uh, the ballpark that we had. I mean, uh, it was it was uncomfortable. It was good hitting park, like Dan Marino always told me. Uh, the exhibition stadium was a good hitting park, uh, mm. but it was a very uncomfortable to play baseball in. Uh, uh, the uh, we it was, it was a joke uh, sometimes. You know, when we coming, we we we. we coming to the field and we saw 
how the the, uh, the the level of the field, so the carpet was 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 uneven. Uh, we have bumped all over the place. It was it was not a good place to play base to play base. Well, that's the least that we can say. I think I think to say that is a understand. But uh, again, when the sky dome open, it's like, oh lord, we we just arrived in paradise. <laughs> I think I think we are in paradise now. Uh, because yes, yes, it was just comfortable to play baseball there. Uh, I don't, I don't know uh, what else to say. I, I, I spoke with other players, you know, that were coming in, and and they, they, they admired the place a lot, and, and they wanted to come and play there. Uh, I know they have made some changes, but again, uh, having this sky dome, I know, built, I think that's what, what make players. Like 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 us like me in my case believe that the the franchise the organization wanted to win and they, because they, they the city was behind us the the, the the organization was behind us we had everything we had the support of ownership we had the sky one of the best scouting system uh, in place uh, we had good good coaching staff and we had the, these people want to win and they did the billing I mean built, uh, machinery uh, mm-hmm. around around him, you know, and he always made the effort to him and Paul Bistone really work together. Just are the, the two main executives that I remember. They really work was making the team better, and then, like I said, with the support of the ownership that I have with a lot of people, it was great. It was great, great experience. Absolutely, sounds like a real synergy between ownership executive management, and on-field coaching and personnel to make the player feel that they're part of something that is evolving. We both know that evolution sometimes in baseball, it doesn't happen as planned. And I remember as a, as a young teenager watching the Blue Jays try to evolve, missing the opportunities that were there in the mid-'80s, and then reaching a point where it seemed like Pat Gillick and Paul Beeston decided that, you know, if we can't beat some of these traditional Blue Jay villains who keep beating us, like Paul Molitor and uh, Dave Stewart and Jack Morris and David Cohn, <laughs> that maybe the strategy would be to go and try and, and recruit them. As a teenager, seeing that in, uh, evolve, Tony, I was excited. But in the winter of 1991, I was a crestfallen young Blue Jays fan. Why? Because I picked up the Toronto Star newspaper on a Sunday afternoon and saw that my hero, Tony Fernandez, and an upcoming slugger who looked like he would be money in the bank for 500 home runs, which he was, Fred McGriff, were traded for Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter. I've always wanted to ask you this because how could I not be curious or my listening audience? Tell me about that day when you found out that after all of these great advances and now the Sky Dome being here and the chance to be a competitive world-class Canadian baseball club, you are now being traded away from it. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, but it was a better speed experience. But like I said earlier, the, uh, we we knew that we needed a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember talking to uh, the team needed a change. We, uh, we uh, as, 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 as players uh, and the personal level knew also that we needed a change. Uh, I remember talking to uh, George Bell uh, the first time we saw each other when we got traded. George was, was with the cops in Arizona, and I was with the San Diego Padres. We went, we went to the outfield, and then we shot a little bit, and then you know, wishing each other 
you know, good luck and so forth. Uh, but uh, we we both agree, you know, we we needed a change, son. We needed a change. Uh, uh, we were frustrated, and uh, maybe a year or two away uh, would be good for them and good for us as well. Uh, but we were happy, like I said, we were happy uh, for the organization, happy for for some of the guys like Ciro, for instance, you know that. Uh, he still was able to 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 get some recognition, so I, w- I was very very happy for him. But of course, I wish that we would have been there uh, from the beginning, like you say, you know, when the team was beginning to be to be good, to be to be, mm-hmm. to be recognized uh, among the league and so forth. Now suddenly, the, the place that we built, somebody else going to enjoy it. Uh, so that that from, from that part, and you know, it was hard. But then we understood that the uh, you know that aspect of the business uh, it comes with the territory and uh, the uh, like you said you know uh, somebody somebody begin because if you look back in retrospect how many how many good Blue Jays came up before we did and they were not yeah. able to go that far so they they they, they basically built they prepared the way for us and I think our group prepare the way for the next group coming and so forth so we in a way we should feel part we should be proud because we were part of that of that winning team winning tradition you know the, that, that club that was being built to win uh, mm-hmm. without those, those those pieces without us basically it was going to be hard for the, for the game to get the other players the other pieces that they had so in a sense we both had, had something to do with it, with the way that things came around for the Toronto Blue Jays. And of course, Tony, it is very rare in sports for a player who is traded to come back to their team, uh, especially more than once. You came back on three different occasions, with obviously the most important one being the opportunity to win in 1993. And I can tell you that from a fan perspective, it was extremely fulfilling to see, uh, as we discussed, a, a loyalist, somebody who was there from the beginning, get a chance to experience what it's like to win a World Series championship. Why do you think this organization kept bringing you back? What is it about the special relationship you had with the Toronto Blue Jays, which made it so unique that you occupy a place in fan lore that no one can dispute. I mean, you are, for all intents and purposes, the greatest sentimental Blue Jays player of all time. They just couldn't get enough of you in your career. I, I believe that uh, the uh, the uh, organization knew how how close my heart was to the city, to the ball club. You know, the media sometimes blow things out of proportion. And, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately, you know, they sometimes they said things that they shouldn't, and uh, sometimes they rightfully saw. Uh, uh, say, say something that uh, uh, were were not too pleasing uh, to the player. But uh, deep deep inside, again, the organization, the main executives like uh, like Felix and Winston, uh, they knew that uh, Toronto was was my was my my heart. Uh, Toronto was my team. And that I, I, I was part of that family, you know, and, and uh, that I felt comfortable in there. That I, had, I gave Toronto everything that I had. Uh, the uh, and some people, you know, say that I, I didn't want to play anywhere else but Toronto. That wasn't true. I mean, I felt very comfortable playing in Toronto, like I said, and I, that's what I wanted to. I think I should have 
began and in my career there, but I, uh, I wish I did. But I again, I have a small pause when I went somewhere else and played with uh, experienced end of the ball club and and and, and so forth. But uh, overall, yeah, my heart was always in Toronto. Uh, I know not not just not just as a ball player. Uh, I enjoy the people of Toronto. I enjoy. Uh, I was treated uh, in Canada in general. I was treated like 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 I, like I belong there. Uh, but it, especially in Toronto, my family felt felt well treated. You know, they felt like we were part of that city, of that culture in a way. So we always are were thankful that they made us uh, part of their culture. They welcomed us that culture. And uh, uh, I'm sure that the, uh, most of the Canadian people of Toronto and felt that way as well. Although I, I have to wonder sometimes, with all of this focus on your experiences as being ones that were rich in a developing baseball culture, in developing a team of brothers and of like-minded, passionate individuals, why then would you perhaps look at what followed for the next 25 years of what was absolutely no playoff baseball. Would you look at that and say that that's what was lacking? Why was the team unable to find even close to the measure of success that you experienced after their last World Series championship in 1993, at least not until September of 2015? Uh, uh, well, you hear it now, Ryan. That I, I believe that, uh, that uh, we lost that brotherhood mentality. Uh, or the organization lost that, no, because we were, we were we were no longer there. But uh, uh, remember, we were like a family up to that point. But then that was lost. You know, uh, baseball be it started to 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 be just a business. For us, it was more than a business. It was it was it was it was, it was a family affair. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we we genuinely care for each other. Uh, we we wanted to be around each other. We spent time together uh, as a family. Uh, the, uh, the like I said, the, the, the ownership. We had the support of ownership and so forth. We we have the scouting were part of it. Everyone in that organization has to do. Uh, it was took part. Took ownership. Let's say it that way. Took yeah. ownership. Uh, and that's, that's very important. I don't think during those years that you, you just mentioned, uh, we were seeing that. And that's my that's And after your last stop with the Blue Jays, which was when you decided ultimately to retire, you did something earlier that I was always fascinated to ask you about, which was your experience in Japan. What did you learn from your Japanese baseball experience that maybe was profoundly different from what you'd experienced your whole life in North America. One thing that I that I wish that, that we, uh, my wife and I, talk about that, and some other players that I will have the opportunity to go uh, overseas and play in Japan. Uh, one thing that we really appreciated in Japan was the respect that they have for us. Uh, mm-hmm. Dignity is something that uh, we as the players, the Latin players. Cherish uh, that yeah, dignity is, is, is the most important thing for us, and uh, we, we felt that uh, when we left, we felt that we were being disrespected, you know, with the kind of offer that uh, kind of contract that we, that we were offered. The uh, I, I I really 
my wife and I, in, in this case, felt that we were uh, we were not appreciated. Uh, uh, why? I don't know. You know what is funny? I'm writing a book, and, I, and that book I'm gonna I'm gonna spawn. I'm gonna I'm gonna explain a few things. I'm gonna spawn. Let's say that it's it's spawn a little bit more. Uh, the uh, the uh, that issue because I really believe that uh, if it had been uh, of another uh, ethnic background, basically uh, perhaps I would I would have been treated differently and given the yeah. opportunity, you know, to 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 finish my career in the way that I should uh, in, in 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 the United States and or, or Canada, the uh, like other players of my caliber did. The uh, I, I truly believe that. But I'm, I'm going to leave it like that for now. Well, you're you're a truly principled man. I can't argue with that, Tony. I know for a fact in in the last few years of your career, there was not so much a shortage of opportunity, but as you described it, there was a shortage of dignity. And for a player of your caliber, your resume, your experience up until that point, it's easy to go on baseball reference or look at the back of a Tony Fernandez baseball card and realize he probably could have kept playing for another half decade. Did you feel that? Did you feel that you had more baseball left in you or given the treatment and what you were experiencing in baseball at the time you decided maybe enough was enough? Yeah, I have more in me. I have more in me. But uh, again, you know, uh, uh, George, again, I'm going to go to George Bell. We talked about that before before uh, we we got traded, and uh, we had to position ourselves uh, in a way that uh, we we would be respected uh, in the game. Otherwise, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna treat us like like, like they do minority. And uh, yeah. so, uh, and, and it's true. So that the only way that I can express that is is, is in my book, because uh, uh, you know uh, the the. Uh, I believe that I, I was I was robbed a few a few years in the major uh, yeah. at the beginning of my career and at the end I should have had at least three years or two years uh, two more years uh, things would have been a lot different if I played two more years in the big leagues or three more years the, uh, no question but again uh, what what can you say you do you do the best with what you can uh, why why are you gonna punish a young player because of the system, or why are you going to punish uh, a uh, a old player, a, a player that is at the end of his career, but is still able to contribute because of the system? Uh, yeah. that, that that's not fair. But then, on the other hand, you have players uh, with less talent uh, that are that are that are that are that contributing less than you at that time. You will give them the opportunity to go for and finish their career. In the way they should. I mean, all those are little things. I mean, I don't, I don't hear anybody talking about that. I didn't hear the media yeah. talking about it in my country. I didn't hear the media talking about that mistake. So even the numbers that I that I put on, I didn't hear nothing in the way that, I, that they they should have, uh, yeah. uh, and so forth. But again, I don't want to create controversy. Although that I, <laughs> it seems like every time every time we open our mouth, uh, we were creating something. Yeah. I think fans respect you for being, uh, in some ways, a quiet superstar. I know that may not seem like the best reference, but it seems to be a dignified one because you and I both know, and many of our listeners, that there was a stretch for a good four or five years, especially in the mid-80s, 
where people talked about the best shortstop in baseball as being Ozzie Smith in the National League and Tony Fernandez in the American League. Your name was synonymous, not just because you were a great defensive player, but because offensively you did everything so well that the game really has changed. We tend to pick apart these statistics and use sabermetrics, but if I looked at some of the things that you did for the team and how you helped move along runners and score runs and protect leads for those 1980s baseball, I think we can both agree that that is something that in today's social media age, everyone would be talking about, Tony. No question about it. Well, you would know more than I do about those things. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know for sure uh, that I, I don't think, I don't think the, uh, the, uh, they were fair with us. I don't think they were overall. I don't think they were fair with me. For me, in, in that case, uh, if 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 I, if I was at the Oshinzi level, I don't I wasn't recognized uh, publicly in the way that I should have. Knowing my contract, knowing what they with the numbers after I retired, uh, in the way that I, they, the, uh, the the people voted for me. I mean, uh, the media or uh, I don't know how they do that. I mean. Uh, Somebody called me and said, you know, how can that be? You got only one point or two points for the all of them. I said, I don't understand. The, uh, uh, that's injustice. Uh, but, you know, one day I know that, that I will see justice on my side. No question. And the Blue Jays as a franchise, of course, did what they should have done from from the moment that you retired, which was put you in the level of excellence. Tell me about the day that they called you and made you part of what is an important recognition, uh, a benchmark of recognition in this city? And also, do you think they're doing a good enough job with their alumni? Are you happy with the way today's Toronto Blue Jays are treating the Tony Fernandezes of the world? Uh, I, I believe they could do more, uh, uh, especially for my ex-teammates. Like, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're, I know that it's impossible to have everyone that has retired at the level of excellence. I mean, uh, uh, but I do appreciate that I was able to uh, to make it. Yes, I was I was honored uh, to be chosen, to be one of the chosen ones, you know, to be placed at that level. But I believe, uh, like I said once again, that, that uh, we have all the players, uh, all the teammates, ex-teammates, that should have been, that should have been there. And, I would have loved to see more of those external Blue Jays work within within the organization. You know, people like 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 Barfield, Mosby. I mean, uh, those guys were 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 the, the icon, Ernie, uh, the uh, icon in the organization. That uh, you know, those iconic figures should have been part of the organization uh, for for a period of a longer time. The uh, I know, for instance, when I saw Jesse commentary on TV, I mean, how well he was yeah. doing. I was proud of that. Uh, we, I was very proud of that. And I saw Lloyd teaching baseball, and he's very knowledgeable. I mean, he, he knows how to teach baseball. And uh, to see them out of the organization uh, for such such a longer period of time, uh, uh, I don't think I don't think that's fair. I think I think. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. But I understand us as a business. You know, they change, management change constantly, and uh, with those changes, of course, they're going to be in new people and so forth. But I wish they can have again more more external Blue Jays with working within the organization. I'm inclined to agree. With alumni, you're talking about those alumni. 
Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they have a lot to give. I believe that the young players will benefit a lot from those alumni. No question. Every, every generation, I think, does. But but what makes your generation so special is that they were part of it almost right from the start, if not from the start. And I think that when a baseball franchise is able to embrace their past and honor what's been done and exalt it as, a, as an example for future players, that's what can create the kind of culture that ultimately translates into winning baseball. Um, I'm embarrassed to know that this team had to wait a quarter of a century to get back to the playoffs. And I'm sure, uh, I'm curious, how much were you paying attention in 2015 when the Blue Jays, quote, turned it around and were able to get back to a place that you had expected to go and see every year, right? I mean, for you, not making the playoffs was a disappointment in your career. Yeah, of course, of course. We all were very, very aware of what's going on. Uh, although we don't follow baseball. In my case, I didn't follow baseball as much uh, as, as I used to you know, when I was in the game. Uh, but, uh, of course, when, once Toronto made it that far, we all got glued to the TV. <laughs> we wanted, we wanted <laughs> to watch. Uh, and the, the anxiety was coming back. Uh, we felt like uh, we were in there, basically. The, uh, but it was a great experience. I mean, I, I, with that, I thought that was going to... I mean to see the city, it's to see the excitement, yeah, uh, in the city and and then the players, you know, so forth. Uh, we were very very happy, and we thought that we were gonna go a little bit further, to be honest. Uh, but it was it was a good experience to see that. Very happy for the city and the organization, of course, because they haven't been there in, in a while. That energy, that electricity, for older fans such as myself, I can tell you it was like the fountain of youth. Because seeing 45,000 strong in the Sky Dome, waving their towels, it could only bring up only the best of memories. Fortunately, you are part of. And uh, how does that feel, by the way, to know that you are a World Series champion and you have that, and that's one thing that no one can ever take away from you, regardless of how many political discussions a person has in this day and age. All that does that, that, to me, I mean, that's a big plus. Uh, like you say, nobody can take away no. from us, or from, from, from me, uh, that I win the World Series. And uh, uh, when I look back in retrospect, you know, I say, well, oh, my goodness. That's a testimony, you know, to the, to the, to the, to the, the way that we, that we uh, play the game, the... Uh, the, the way that we that we that we trust each other, there are so many things that were that were right for us to to win the World Series, uh, and being the right being with the right people, being at the right place, uh, having the right plans and so forth, the strategies, and uh, we were part of, a, of something big in the city, uh, something big in baseball. So we should feel proud of our, our accomplishments in that regard. And I'm I'm proud that the organization went went and created the opportunity for you to return, Tony. It would have been a great shame to not have your name on that trophy and to not be able to get a ring from what was a true day one faithful Blue Jays player. Let's let's turn our attention to today. What are you up to today? Obviously, recently you had some some health concerns. Tell my audience how you're feeling right now and, and maybe a little bit more about this book that you were talking about that you'll be promoting soon. Uh, well, I, I am feeling much better now right now. Thank God, you know, I'm able to continue 
for the work that we're doing, you know, throughout the foundation, part of my ministry, part of our ministry, you know, mm-hmm. to to help needy uh, kids or kids at risk, uh, especially in the Dominican Republic, but we do get involved with kids also in Canada and the United States. Uh, we are we we want to expand uh, basically what we're doing and uh, perhaps give more. There's a way for us of giving back to the community. Uh, they 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 did so much for us, and in the future I would like to see more of a in, in interaction between Canada and Dominican Republic uh, with youth baseball, uh, whether we will expose our kids, you know, uh, the other underprivileged kids, uh, also keep at risk. We we want to expose them to another culture, and uh, what 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 better culture than the Canadian one? Uh, I believe that Canada has a, has a, it's a very rich culture in many aspects, and I think our kids, our children, could benefit a lot from from them. And I believe as well that our children from Canada can can benefit from from our culture in the Dominican Republic, because when you when you grow up having everything, uh, sometimes you, you take for granted some other aspect of life. Yes. Yeah. So I, 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 I really, I really believe that uh, we, we're going to be able to connect with the, uh, with, with the two countries and uh, have this kids enjoy uh, the best of all countries. Well said, and that that is so incredibly true that the Dominican Republic and the Toronto Blue Jays, in some regards, are just uh, infused with one another. Their history, their relationship. Uh, let's face it if not for another Dominican Republic superstar who arrived on the scene and had his career with the Blue Jays and Jose Bautista, uh, this team really does owe so much to the country and vice versa. Would you say that it's the most unique relationship between a baseball franchise and the Dominican Republic that, that you know of? If it's not the, 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 the best one, it's very unique. It's one of the best ever, uh, to be honest. It reminds me of the... Uh, uh, Pittsburgh Pirates and the the uh, and Puerto Rico, and yeah, they, they had a yeah, great absolutely. relationship. And I really believe that that's the type of relationship that Toronto Blue Jays and the Dominican uh, forgive me that the, the, the candidate through the Toronto Blue Jays uh, and and the Dominican Republic through its players. That's the kind of the relationship that they should have. We are like ambassadors of our country, uh, but uh, you know we represent the Dominican Republic. And that sense, but we also feel that we are goodwill ambassadors uh, for the Canadian people, especially the Toronto Blue Jays in this case. And it is fascinating how the relationship is impacted by the modern era and economics of baseball, right? You didn't see million dollar contracts being thrown at young teenage players back in your day. It seems now like it's all about the highest bidder, and that can create. A marginalization a little bit of certain markets the more and more countries open up their doors for potential players that's correct that's correct before you know, you would see uh, you were hoping to see a particular player uh, to, to, to play his whole career in one place and the fans is to identify with that player but because of the, the, the change of the economy of the game and so forth that's no longer uh, a fact. I mean, uh, you, you might get used to a, to see a player for four years or five years, six years, you know, before a free agency, uh, and then if he, nothing could be worked out on both sides, then 
they're going to part their way. And, and and you have to get used to that. The, uh, I know that it's hard for the players sometimes, but I, I believe that uh, the, the business aspect of the game has taken, it's been taken over. Uh, back in the day that we played, I think it was more, 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 there was a closer relationship between mm. the club and the player, and the fans of the player, and so forth. And I'm sure that a decade before us was even closer than that. So it all comes with the territory. Mar- marvelous insights, Tony. I, I, I truly am touched that I could really pick your brain and appreciate not just the baseball side between your relationship with the Toronto Blue Jays, but your, your worldview, really. It sounds to me like you're someone who still to this day is very much at peace with the way baseball is, but you want to challenge it. You want the game to continue finding ways to evolve, and that includes having the best possible relationship with your home countrymen. Of course. Of course it is. Remember, back on those days, uh, back then, the, uh, the, the way that, uh, that our coaches would connect was through sports. I mean, the Olympics began like that. Uh, and, and, and sometimes we forget that uh, it's just a game. It, 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 of course, it is a job, but it's just the game. And, uh, and, and, and you connect the will of the person, the will of the country uh, through the game. The, 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 uh, it's like, uh, remember when uh, Ismaili and, and, and Joe Louis fought, you know, German, yeah, yeah. Uh, Germany and, and the U.S. I mean, it was like a two countries against each other, but I would, they were represented by two athletes and, and so forth. The, uh, the, uh, now we are more of a friendly uh, aspect. Of, I mean, we are more friendly than, 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 than those days. The, the, we are not hostile nations anymore, but it's the when you when you play like when the Dominican Republic is when, when we are playing in the big league, any any of us are in the big league level or well, the World Series, uh, for for instance, you're not only representing your team, uh, you're representing your family, you're representing your country, you're representing you know uh, a whole a lot more than, than yourself. Uh, you have a lot that you should. Uh, and, and I believe that for the American it's the same way, and the Canadian is the same way. Uh, so, so sports unites nations. You know, sports bring friendship out, basically. Uh, what, what politicians are not able to accomplish, believe me, the sports of the athletes or sports in general is able to accomplish. Well, with sentiments like that, all I can hope is that whatever you decide to do with baseball, that you choose to do it with the Toronto Blue Jays. I would love nothing more than to see more of you involved, not just in alumni events, but maybe in offering your wisdom and experience, whether it's as as a hitting coach, as a manager. Um, I feel like the franchise still hasn't seen everything yet from Tony Fernandez. I feel like there might be still an opportunity somehow for you to be involved in a way that many generations, not just my generation, not just my father or your father's generation, but the millennials have a chance to appreciate what it means to have this kind of pride and dignity. I might even call this episode that, Tony. I might call it pride and dignity because that's exactly what I'm hearing in in having a privilege of being able to talk to you. I want to thank you so much for doing this, and I certainly look forward to your book and to retweeting anything I can to promote 
what you're up to. And if you're so inclined in the future, it would always be a pleasure to have you back on the show. I told Jesse Barfield that I plan to be doing some round tables. So maybe we'll get you, George, Lloyd Mosby, who knows. We'll mix up some of the tables and, and talk about the great times that were and hopefully the better times that will come. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, those are very kind words. I would love to. I would love to. I would love to reconnect with my ex-teammates, you know, and, and, and so forth, and, and and tell them how much I miss them. Because sometimes, sometimes we don't we don't say those words uh, too often. That thing becomes a pride. But I do miss my ex-teammates. That's my extended family. Absolutely. And on behalf of all the listeners and many of your fans here from the Jays Journal, I can tell you we miss you. You've been listening to Blue Jays legendary shortstop Tony Fernandez, a World Series winner, Gold Glove winner, all-star, owner of many Blue Jays records that I could probably do a separate show telling you all about. Mr. Fernandez, thank you for your time. And on behalf of everyone here at the Jays Journal, have a great night. Thank you, likewise.